0: Hey is this thing on? Lance, Nick, ready? Can you hear me? Welcome to the Live Free and Hunt podcast. Live Free and Hunt Podcast. I don't even know what episode it is. It's I feel like we've been gone. It's just me today because everybody else is busy. I'm busy too, but I uh, I had to sneak one in. This uh this podcast is with Eric Orf. Um we um we've been trying to get together and have a conversation in person, but it just it hasn't worked out on my end. Uh like I said, everybody's busy. So um, it is a phone call podcast, which I hate to do just because it makes conversation hard. Um, And when you get to meet somebody in person and have a face-to-face conversation, that always, I mean, it just flows better. So I apologize on the audio. I think audio should be fine, but when I listen to podcasts, I I don't like the phone ones either. So um, let's get to it.
1: deck of cards that loves to lose you don't listen to me and i don't want you to cause we sure have fun throwing my money away you bet high i bet low you're all in and i'm all broke another paycheck down the drain all
0: right eric we finally did it we finally (laughs) <laughs> Almost got together here. Yeah. Um. It's wild times. Everybody's busy. Usually, I have two other guys with me doing this podcast. Okay. So, um, bear with me here. I'm by myself. So, what I, I, what I usually like to do with guys is, um, just figure out or you know see how they grew up in the woods. And, and are you from New Hampshire? Well,
2: originally from, from Maine. From Maine. Uh, yeah, originally uh, from the mid coast, Waldoboro. Yep. And then uh, my, father, my father took a job for Northeast Airlines way up in Presque Isle. Oh, nice. Right near Presque Isle for a period of years before we moved. At age 12, 1962, we moved to Londonderry.
0: Did you grow up in the woods? New Hampshire. I was a
2: child of the woods. I absolutely was. I uh, At an early age, at age, uh, I was a wanderer. My mother couldn't keep me home. I mean, my father was doing so, uh, part of his education to be in to work on aircraft and be around aircraft out in Oklahoma when I was four and my mother no matter what she did couldn't keep me home so there was a swamp nearby so I was down in the swamp at age four by the time we were in northern Maine Mapleton which is to the west side of Presque Isle and my father actually had a farm there he worked for Northeast Airlines but he had a farm on the side and uh, you know I told my folks my parents then that I wanted to be a forester that worked with animals so I knew what I wanted to do at age seven or eight or nine right and it just took me a while to get there (laughs) but i certainly knew what i wanted i didn't know there was such a thing as a wildlife biologist but i knew that's what i wanted to
0: do yeah very early age that's excellent i know at times were a lot different back then um just the woods itself we just got done talking about the woods uh, before we started recording here um what do you see like i mean from where you started and how you grew up in the woods and just wandering around like you said where do you see it stopping as far as we we had the conversation about my kids growing up in the woods and and trying to get them into hunting is there going to be any woods left you know um that's my biggest worry what what do you think about
2: you know uh in my close to well my uh say I'm 70 so and and first got to know the woods at age four so there's still lots of woods left, lots of opportunities. As we know, since that pandemic struck there are more and more people in the woods and we saw that ourselves and, and actually for the last twenty years of my career, or at least a dozen years, as a fishing game wildlife biologist. And I retired in two thousand and seven. But in the last decade or more of my career, I saw a lot more people in the woods. I mean I, I live here in Epsom right near Bearbrook State Park which is ten thousand acres that is protected. A wonderful place. Uh and, you know, the last 10 or more years of my career, I would find, see people out in the woods in the middle of winter when I was checking duck boxes out there or other places checking on deer yards. I mean, it, it actually started in the early 2000s with, I think, people enjoying the woods like so many of us that are hunters and fishermen and trappers did right. long before that. So the, uh, the swing into the woods and this pandemic has just, has, has, has increased that multiple, you know, multiple. So right. a lot more people in the same woods. And, you know, I certainly think that we, uh, we need to, and I'm going to challenge the, you know, the Bear Par Regional Greenway here and, and the Society for the Protection of Hampshire Forest and Fishing Game and the Hampshire Audubon to double down. You know, we know that that open space, being in the woods, being in protected woods that will not change. Is good medicine during a pandemic.
0: Right, absolutely. That's where
2: people went, they yep. all went to the woods. Yep. And uh, you know, I talked to anybody that were hikers. Uh, you know, the trails were crowded. My my granddaughter, who was uh, sixteen at the time in October, uh, her and her sister and a couple of friends decided to hunt, to hike Mount Major here up near Winnipesaukee and be there for sunrise. So they got into the parking lot. And it seemed odd that there were some other cars around. But, you know, they, it was dark, and they headed up with their headlights and got up to the top of, the, of Mount Major. As the sun rose, they discovered there were 50 people around them. It was packed. So our woods are filling up with folks. I think, you know, we need to encourage conservation organizations, town conservation commissions. We need to double the amount of protected land in New Hampshire over the next decade. we got to get at it yep, and
0: I totally ready.
2: Be ready for the next pandemic when there'll be more people and more people want to be in the woods so you know our woods were crowded this year and the number of hunters went up substantially I didn't find that right here where I hunt or even in Maine where I hunted there were actually fewer hunters in Maine where I was than in some years past but nevertheless we know that the number of hunters increased the number of women getting into hunting and outdoors is dramatically up we need we need more protected lands in my opinion and I, I hope others saw the same thing and are thinking the same way and uh uh yeah we uh, we definitely need more more op- more protected open lands and, and that is open to hunting fishing and outdoor recreation yeah
0: i totally agree I just from the time i grew up hunting there's spots that you know now are subdivisions or there's a you know box store there now or or whatever you know wherever the case may be and i i like i fantasize sometimes about I don't, I don't even, it might be a thing already, but I don't think it is, is having some kind of, some kind of like subdivision <clears throat> tax that goes towards, you know, either another public land or or towards wildlife management or something like that. I know it's probably not, it's far fetched for me to say that, but, and especially the, the career that I'm in, you know, I, that's, that's how I kind of make a living, but I, I like right. wildlife more, but. It just, it seems crazy that it just, when's it going to stop? It's like the woods are just slowly. And if you don't pay attention to it, then it's going to be too late. Well,
2: Tyler, I can say, fortunately, we already have that law in the book.
0: Okay, good. When,
2: when, when, uh, when land trades places, when you sell your house, there is actually, it's a nominal amount, something like 25 or maybe a hundred dollars gets put into a fund that is supposed to be used for conservation. And, uh. Uh, it's you know it's uh, well. There's the current use when you get a penalty. Some towns will take that uh, current use penalty. So if you take if you had a you know a 15 acre uh, tract that you decided to and you had it under current use, so you were paying very low taxes, and when that gets converted into housing, there is a significant penalty uh, for doing that okay. in, in a tax. called a current use tax, and many towns have voted to use all of that penalty money for Conserving other lands. Some towns, including mine here in Epsom, did not do that. But some towns have used a portion or all. And I would certainly, I would think many towns should think about that as well. Right. You know, moving that, moving that up the scale. So, uh, you know, seeing how how valuable open lands were for this pandemic, and uh, and then there's you know some other funding available. But uh, even uh, like uh, New Hampshire Audubon, where I happen to serve on a policy committee, it's a committee of about a dozen of us and I've been a long time Audubon member and, and worked with Audubon as my career fishing game for you know over 30 over three decades so I sat on a, a policy committee and we uh, the, the committee decides what stand on various bills Audubon should take and of course I am the vice president of the New Hampshire Wildlife Federation and today we had our annual meeting where we did the same thing we uh, looked at a number of bills and, and voted to take positions on those bills so when they are heard, at the House and Senate this coming weeks and there will be testimony provided by staff or uh, or uh, or volunteers so uh, so that is ongoing but I uh, I know Audubon and the Hampshire Fishing Game for the last decade or more have said well you know we've got quite a bit of land and we we don't really think we need more right now because you know we don't have the funds or the wherewithal to manage the existing land. I know fishing game has been that way for more than a decade. Right, yep. That needs to stop. We need to double down every every town, every state agency. I'm not asking the federal government to have another White Mountain National Forest, but I think towns and the conservation commissions, the land trust, they we all need to double down and do a better job in protecting permanently protecting more open space for the future for the next pandemic when it rolls around and there will be one
1: yeah. and there'll
2: be a lot more people the and tra- the trails if we don't do something will be way more crowded so we need to look to the future we need to look to your kids and their kids having a place to hunt and fish so uh that's kind of it's that's kind of my 2021 pledge is to work on encouraging uh this to happen i don't know how exactly i'm going to do it but this is one way, but <laughs> I'm on <laughs> your side. Yeah. Right
0: exactly. I appreciate <laughs> so, it. <laughs> let's, let's do it.
2: Let's right. get it done. Excellent. Now,
0: do Excellent. So, I want to you said you did what, 3 decades of of um, work with New Hampshire Fishing Games, is that correct?
2: That's correct. Yeah, okay. from uh, not, from uh, November of 1976
0: to uh, June of uh, 2007. And you graduated so, from UNH and I did in 72. Okay. Yep. Take me through that. So, when you First started as a biologist. What was your first day like? What did you... Okay.
2: Well, let me give you a little background on how I got there. Yeah, absolutely. Because I want to give some credit to some folks, not necessarily by name, but by organizations. You know, at age 14, my brother was going to take Hunter Safety, and I I tagged along. And I lived in London at the time. And by the way, where I live now is a is a commercial development. The, the, there are, you know, hundreds of acres gone not just a few houses here and there so you know but i took hunter safety and fell in love with the with the club members and are really you know enjoyed that and and at an age of 14 i joined the London fishing game club and i'm still a member a life member so it was a lot of those club members that really helped form me into who i was to become because what was the number one conversation at any fishing game club it's fishing game. Fishing game, this and fishing and game that, and how if only fishing game did this, we would have more pheasants, we would have more deer. We'd... So, fishing game was like at the top of the of the agenda every meeting. And yeah, just got me intrigued with this fishing game department. Yeah, what
0: is this all about? Yeah,
2: yeah. And then I actually, I started going as a youngster, a part of that club. Uh, to uh, we were a member of the New Hampshire Wildlife Federation because clubs all joined back then. So I volunteered to be one of the delegates that went to the quarterly meeting. So at age fifteen or sixteen, I began going to New Hampshire Wildlife Federation meetings, and it was held in Concord. And Rachel Terrell was the was the executive director at the time. So so that whole club and that you know movement and uh, helped really form who I was. And, and I uh, you know I actually grew up in Londonderry, and there was a marsh behind my house called Little Cohass Marsh. That was actually built by the fishing game department, a dam in the, I think, the late 50s to flood about 250 acres. So I discovered these duck boxes and I, you know, checked those all out and learned about them. And I that next winter, I convinced the London Fishing Game Club to buy some wood. And I built another 10 or a dozen duck boxes and put them out there myself and began testing them. (laughs) And and what was one of my jobs at uh, New Hampshire Fishing Game the last uh, 25 years of my career? Checking the duck boxes. I've done this before. Unbelievable! It was so (laughs) awesome. So how did I get it? So I actually, Taylor, uh, I had to go to prison to get into fishing game. And I, when I graduated in '72, I, you know, wrote to all 50 states and I tried to get on the federal roster. I made a mistake. I'd worked my way through college at construction. When I graduated, I owed not a don Yeah. But I had no experience and I had no contacts. It killed me. I. You know, I would, you know, go up to the fishing game every now and then, and, you know, any jobs there, and they just weren't. They, they never have been in the field. right? And, uh, but what I, what did I do? I actually moved to Allentown so I could be closer to Conquer, close to fishing games. So I could go up more often. And then in July of 76, I uh, took a job as a prison guard at New Hampshire State Prison. So I tell people... To get a job at Fishing Game, I had to go to the to prison, to prison. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I was the kitchen guard. So I was in the basement of the prison, and every day I would be locked in there from three to eight p.m. with twenty inmates who did the cooking. and And the first thing I did when I uh, got into the kitchen was locked in with them. I opened a box and I handed out twenty butcher knives because we they raised cows at the time. There was a, in the cooler was a cow that they yeah. caught up for dinner. There You're thinking, how
0: did I get myself in this so, predicament?
2: <laughs> so I handed them the knives, right. 20 of them, because I had to count them and make Sounds sure there were 20 before they went to bed, yeah. before we kicked them in. <laughs> <laughs> so so I learned to live with, uh, you know, I learned to survive with the inmates there and had a, a good time. But So what did that allow? So then I was working in Cork and I could stop at fishing game every week, and any job this week, and any job this week. And by golly, Dick Siemens, who was the chief of fisheries, Finally said, "Well, we got a full-time temporary job for you, Eric, and that was it. That started me. So I had a full-time temporary job that lasted 31 years. Wow, that is crazy. <laughs> I actually started in the fishery division as a as a bio aide. And uh, day one on the job, I uh, uh, I worked with a, a, a biologist at the time, Lee Welcome, and he uh, and we went over and he you know uh, helped me you know, get my uniform from the supply depot and some boots and." Day one or two, we went up to uh, I think Swam Lake, and we actually pulled some nets because he was doing a bass study on Squam Lake. So I had to. So we pulled some nets, and it might have not been that day, but within a few weeks, we actually pulled the net in, and when we measured some white perch. He said, "Well, those two fish we just measured were
0: state record fish." So, huh.
2: <laughs> of wow. course, I had always been a fisherman. I, you know, luckily uh, at an early <laughs> I'll age. I put that one in my fishing, back pocket. <laughs> yeah i was uh, i was I was bass fishing and a bass fishing with my best friend Rick Hamlet long before there were there was you know much about bass we used to watch Gadabout about Gad, that was on TV back then and we, we were into bass fishing and uh, you know just fished whenever I could and and uh so yeah it was all part of you know being a, a member of the club and being around people who hunted and fished and drove my interest even more and I just knew I you know I needed to be a wildlife biologist so it, you know i I went through prison to get there, so I started as a bio aide in November of 76. In in uh, the fall of 78, they actually had a full time permanent job as a black bear biologist, and I applied for it, never expecting to get it. But nevertheless, Henry Laramie, the supervisor over there, uh, ended up hiring me. I had to do, you know, take a test. I remember uh, he wanted to do a field test, so I had to get into a 15 foot. Aluminum canoe and paddle across the Merrimack River and back standing up. That was one of the tests I had to do that day to to qualify for the job. And,
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so Henry put me. Henry put me. Not only did I have to pass a, a, a written test at the state, I had to pass Henry Laramie's test. And, That's right. And, yeah.
0: <laughs> and
2: he put an X on a map on a top topo map and said, "Okay, drive me to that spot or take me to that spot." And so, I I think it might have been in Pembroke or someplace. It wasn't that far away, but you know, I had to know a map and compass. But Luckily for me, I you know in the early 70s I was into whitewater canoeing. I was and I had my own canoe from the early 70s, and and I had taken uh, you know courses in college on how to navigate and and use maps. So I was pretty well set there. So I had a, a pretty good background and a, and a lot of field experience that that uh, not everybody had because of my interest in hunting and fishing, and and I think I'd h- held a trapping license or two by then. I hadn't caught anything but maybe some scouts, but I'd tried it. Yeah. So. Uh, that was, uh, that was how I got into fishing game and, uh, was hired as the first black bear biologist in October of 1978. And I hadn't been on the job, I think my second day, we got a call that there was a bear up a tree in, on Plymouth State College. So Henry and I went up. So I began, uh, to learn how to tranquilize bear. Well, this bear was up a big old oak tree and we put a ladder up and the fire department was there and we, uh fire to tranquilize the dart into the bear. And it takes him four or five or 10 minutes to, to go to sleep. And Henry went up the ladder, was trying to lasso the bear to to lower it down. Well, it, it didn't quite work. The bear came ripping down over Henry, down the ladder, and the, and me and the firemen stood our place. And, and luckily the bear didn't go anywhere when he hit the ground because I probably would have tried to pounce on it. But uh, luckily the bear didn't move, and I, I didn't do that. But it was a female bear, and we let it go, I think, on Plymouth Mountain. And that next spring, it was seen with a couple of cubs, so it was kind of a a really cool thing right. to do. Day two on the job. Yeah. All
0: right. I guess I'm <laughs> jumping into this now. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Can I? I want to roll right into the the um, the bear biology. Um, when you got, are you doing most of that work in the winter time and hibernate and when they're hibernating?
2: Well, well, of course you got to catch the bear, and that happens over the summer. And luckily for me, I. Early on, developed a very good relationship with the New Hampshire Bear Hunters Association. They are the houndsmen, and uh, and uh, I would go up on weekends. Every other weekend, I would uh, be north with them, and they would be treeing bear and using CB radios. And they would, uh, I would ride with somebody, and they'd, oh, we got a bear up a tree in Lisbon, and I'd go over there and tranquilize that bear and put some ear tags in. Now, Henry Laramie, to uh, actually started in the 1960s tagging bear. So he was like a world leader in bear research. And uh, at the time, he was mostly trapping nuisance bears in a, either a culvert trap or, or what's called a snare trap. And from his early work, uh, he actually developed the tranquilizer. So he would have a bear in a trap, and the local Concord vet that he knew well, Jim Payne, Uh, would go with Henry and look into this trap and say, well, that bear looks like it weighs 150 pounds, and they would try this tranquilizer. And if it didn't work, they tried another one. So he actually, Henry, developed the first successful method of tranquilizing black bears in North America. And actually, Maine wrote it up into a journal, so it spread from there. But Henry was the one that figured that all out and passed that information along to me. But what we found he found was like within two years, 75% of those bears that he had been tagging for a period of six or eight years were dead. So we were kind of wondering, you know, is that the mortality rate for all of a bear? So by me going up and with the houndsman and, tra- and tagging non-nuisance bear, we had a sense of what the true mortality rate was of wild bear and not just nuisance bear that tend to get killed more frequently
0: were they so yeah i was going to ask that question so the nuisance bears that were got tagged you were assuming were just you think they're getting shot uh not in bear season is that what you're saying oh no just getting hit
2: well i would say the majority were during bear season but for some reason they were very vulnerable from that behavior compared to bear that were not nuisance bears right So and you know i began collecting bear teeth in 1978 i actually uh, had hunters uh, donate bear skulls or the top jaw, and I would pull a tooth. I mean, you know, originally it was the canines, the big one, but we soon learned that you only need a very small uh, residual tooth. And by 83, 84, I had enough information from aging those bears that we could kind of estimate the bear population. And at the time, the bear season, of course, was set by the legislators, which almost all our hunting laws had been set by the legislators over time and didn't change very much. We're not very flexible. Mm-hmm. So uh, I determined by 84 or five that we maybe had a 1, thousand, 1200 dares And, but they were almost no older females, older than age four five or six. It's those older females that normally produce three cubs and, and, and are successful at raising those cubs to at least age one based on research in some other States. So we thought that the bear population was in a significant decline with about a thousand bears on the ground in New Hampshire. And, uh, so we lobbied the legislator in 1985, they granted Fish and Game the authority to regulate bear hunting. And that year I, I closed all but the Northern three counties. And then we only had a one month bear season. So we we're, you know, trying to turn this declining bear population around th- largely thanks to Henry's efforts. And, uh, and over the next decades, you know, the bear population grew. And, you know, when well, now we have something like 5,500 bears in New Hampshire. And this last year set a, set a record bear kill of almost 1,200 bears. Yeah. So we killed more bears in 2020 than existed in 1985.
0: That's pretty wild to think about right there. That's yeah. crazy. When you, If you'd killed that many
2: bears in 1985, they would have been gone. <laughs>
0: yeah, they'd be all gone, yep.
2: Yeah. They'd be all gone.
0: <laughs> when you are... When you were talking about uh pulling teeth and and you know you i assume you age it just like a a deer tooth is that how you would eat yep. yeah yep. okay.
2: uh, we actually send it to a lab out in Montana that does it that you know are are good at it and and it's you know well worth that yeah that uh, service
0: how do you come up with as a biologist how how do you estimate a number like how would you estimate a a bear population based on how many either sow teeth you have or, or how's that math work
2: well when i did it in the in the mid 80s early mid 80s it was you know in order to have this many bears killed we knew they had it probably this many on the landscape so it was kind of a more of a logical deduction much less so than today mm-hmm. <clears throat> there are computer you know models that that you put in the age data and bear sightings you know if you were our deer hunter and are successful you know that the following years fishing game will send you a survey as to how many bears and bobcats and moose you saw the first 5 days of the season so so that's observation so there there's some different types of formulas that are now available to give probably much better estimates than you know than the the rather crude one i came up with in 1983 yeah. and 84 based on the little information we had at the time and and we had no access
0: to computers you made the right call obviously cuz i think uh we're doing pretty good
2: yeah, we have a lot of bears, but and it's just not bears. I mean, in the early 80s, the fishing game estimated we had about 40,000 deer in the state, and I think that was 1983. Now we have, what, hundred to 120,000 deer. So uh, the moose numbers, of course, went from a few hundred to over 7,500, and now because of our climate change, or we're losing our moose. They're down to about 3,000 turkeys from zero. Uh, before somewhere released in 1975, successfully along the Connecticut River, now there's what 45,000 turkeys. Yeah. So this is there's never been a better time to be a hunter than right now in New Hampshire.
0: It's it's crazy to think about because you read the old books or you know go to deer camp and listen to the old deer stories from your grandfather or you know your dad or whoever, and it's like oh yeah we came up here and we shot this buck and you're just like wow this you you go to deer camp and the old all the old war stories of deer Mm -hmm. camp or you know whatever it doesn't it's it's nice to know or it's it's nice to know now is like the best years yeah of well if you
2: look at the deer killed in it was three to five well The low was around 3,000 in 1983, but many years it was you know five to eight thousand or six thousand. Of course, it did. There was a record kill in 1967 at over 14,000, which still is the state record. 14,000, I think, 300, somewhere in that vicinity. But uh, from talking to the current biologists, deer biologists, you know, over 60% of those were females, were were does. So it put a big dent on the population, and actually after 1967 the deer herd at least from what i saw personal opinion not fact declined and you know that's why by the uh, you know by the early 80s fishing game was uh, asking to get permission to regulate deer hunting and i think that happened for the first time in 1983 that's why the kill was down around 3000 because there actually was a uh, parts of new hampshire were bucks only i think there was some section you could still outdoze, but much of the much of the state in 83 was bucks only and that's why you know it dropped the kill down to around 3,000 deer which was like the low point in the last uh, 40 50 years right <clears throat> so uh from then on the deer herd started to grow
0: i was going to ask you about um since we're on that deer topic uh deer yards and i guess we're in where are we in january late january right now where i live right here we have maybe four inches of like hard ice pack snow uh i don't see what what makes a deer yard up and where is like that cutoff line and why is it there if you could answer i know that's a loaded question but
2: no it's an easy question to answer if you've had
0: some experience there's these 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 um pockets of deer where i live they're not like i've seen a a deer yard where there's hundreds of deer up north what makes them decide to do that and why is it than southern more southern places they don't they don't need to do that
2: so there's basically two triggers to drive deer into a deer yard it's snow depth over 18 inches they yard up Temperatures below i think it's below 10 degrees or zero or there's there's a minimal temperature that deer seek deer yards because if you as you say you've been in a deer yard so it's a closed canopy up north it's furs and central and southern new hampshire is generally Hemlocks, all of, uh, you know, they can be in pines or in central and southern New Hampshire. South facing slopes yep. are important for our deer, so they don't always yard in the thickest of cover. Sometimes it's the it's the uh, the terrain, you know, south facing slope, especially in southern New Hampshire. So you know, up north, I mean, fishing game staff were checking deer yards. Well, in, I think probably in the 1930s. In 1940s, I, just when I came on, they kind of stopped doing that. There used to be, you know, an annual way up north in the big deer yards that have a couple or a few hundred deer in them. There'd be the annual deer yard search where they'd go and search for carcasses and uh, check those. You know, you you break open the femur and you look at the, the bone marrow and you can determine from the type of bone marrow that's left in that bone, whether the deer was near, whether the deer probably starved to death or probably died of some other cause. Uh, so if it's really, uh, red and gelatinous and very little fat in it, it probably means it died of, of, uh, malnourishment versus if there's some fat content and there's actually a little card, you rate it as uh, you know, one to five, you know, did it likely die of starvation or did something else kill it? Uh, so that was conducted in the forties, fifties into the sixties, uh, in seventies, but it, I never went on one. I think we kind of wound it up and why did we do so? My guess is the coyotes entered New Hampshire in around '72 up in Colbrook, up that way, and swept down the state over the next decade. So they don't—they didn't leave anything in the woods. You know, you could go into a deer yard and they were gone. So right, before yeah. that, there was a, there was you know nobody that ate them all. And in the springtime, you could go and do a deer yard check and find dead deer. And after a while, <laughs> there were none to be found. <laughs> right, yes. But we still collected, and we, I'm sure to this day, uh fishing game biologists are probably still collecting, and, and we often work very closely with the conservation officers who, you know, largely pick up the dead deer or, you know, come upon a roadkill or go collect it. So I, I, I'm i guessing they're still collecting these femurs and, and examining them. And, and so I wonder like this, where there's no snow, they're, they're not yarding up. There's not 18 inches of snow, and Except for the, this week, there's no really cold weather. So it's that canopy that, you know, that the deer radiate less heat is why they do it. They're so it's a matter that. of energy conservation. It's, you know, it's not so much food. I mean, even when I was going to UNH, there was some deer projects going on there and deer metabolism. And one of the interesting things that I learned from that study is even in pens at UNH where they were given the best food, that they could want, they would lose 25 or more percent of their weight. They simply do not eat over the winter. So it's more energy efficient to not move and to not eat than it is to go and look for food and waste energy in case you don't find it. So deer naturally lose weight over the winter Unlike most of us, and, <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> they're, the, they're the antithesis of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: absolutely. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think I got my COVID 19 going here. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> What's your opinion on feeding deer in the wintertime?
2: Of shooting them?
0: Fe- no, fee- sorry, feeding, feeding them.
2: them. Oh, feeding them. Uh, it, 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 there's plenty of stuff on Fishing Games website that's just not a great thing to do. Okay. It's just a rhyme because you, you know, they they digest with bacteria they don't have the right bacteria and in one case a couple of years ago over on the coast where some of you you know started feeding a bunch of deer they died uh, as much as it's nice to see them and well, you know we i feed my birds every day and i feed turkeys every day or practically feeding deer is just a thing that it should be discouraged to the best that we can and it, because it really doesn't help And the other thing it does that instead of being in the deer yards back in the you know back 40 they're they're crossing roads they get hit all winter so yeah. you you increase the mortality by feeding them it's just you know it's the it's the dumb thing to do
0: right on um i want to touch on moose and i want to touch on turkey real quick and i think sure. i want to make this into a, a two-part uh podcast and i would like to have you in person when we can finally meet sure Love but, to come up um the
2: moose pup. I got pop- to see that room you're sitting in. That looks pretty Yeah, impressive. I
0: guess I guess I got some stuff hanging around.
2: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, look at that. Wow.
0: Yeah. So.
2: Yeah, we'll definitely I gotta go see that. I got to hear some stories from Yeah, you.
0: absolutely. So, um, moose population, when I was growing up, maybe 10, 12 years old, you could go north drive up to pittsburgh route three and there'd be yep. moose all over the sides of the road yep. um my dad shot a moose in a1 i think when i was 13 or 14 and it wasn't necessarily a hard task because there was a lot of moose or it seemed like there was a lot of moose i don't know if they're closer to the roads or what the deal was um and then with a the, as i got older it seems like the it was winter ticks or brain wor- worm what was the you you mentioned it was um something to do with the climate what do you is that what you think happened to oh, the yeah. population Without
2: question. It, it's a proven fact and and the the last big meal of a tick you know, they get on in november and they go through a couple of life stages and by april they're ready to the females to you know engorge on blood one more time and drop off it's that last meal so april is the is the month of death for our moose in new hampshire of course, adult mortality is less than that, but they some do die, and but you know the number of calves that die can be over seventy percent. And it used to be you know one out of five or ten winters would have a good tick year and we'd have some loss, but now it's three out of five. And yeah, they just can't recover. So they've been in this decline from seventy five hundred just twenty years ago to I think a close to three thousand today, and it's that truncated winter, no snow in November when the babies are getting on, and no snow in April when the female drops off and lays her eggs. If she drops off on snow, the eggs don't do well. They drop off in bare ground. They, they thrive, and that next winter, there's a lot more ticks to get on the moose. And that's kind of White Mountains North. South of the White Mountains uh, is where, as you know, the deer herd has grown. You know, Most of that uh, 80,000 deer growth in the last 40 years has been south of the White Mountains. Where the majority of our deer are now taken during the season. So down here, it's probably more brainworm uh, related. You know, uh, deer, almost all the deer, uh, because they they uh, evolved with it, have brainworm and it doesn't affect them. But if a moose gets one brainworm, they're dead. Really? And, and I've had to put down brain. You know, that were moose that were clearly, you know,
0: in trouble. Yeah.
2: You know, had brainworm and, and were <clears> going to die, so I would put them down. So you, you know, it's easily seen in many of the moose. So so it, it depends on where you are in New Hampshire, but why did the deer herd grow from 40,000 to 120,000 milder winters? So still climate change driven, but two different factors.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Brainworm south of the White Mountains, winter tick, White Mountains north. So wow. dr- driven by the same mechanism, by a warming climate, but uh, and nevertheless killing off our moose. And basically three or four years ago when I was working for the National Wilder Federation, after I retired in 07 from fishing game, I actually worked another stint for the National Wildlife Federation, the Ranger Rick folks, for 12 years, and uh, wrestled um, more politicians than uh, than, than bears. <laughs> yeah. It <was> more difficult. <laughs> <clears throat> but it, it was a fun gig. It was kind of fun to do, but uh, uh, you know, I, I was still engaged and uh, you know, talking to the moose biologist and the moose research at the time. And, Basically, what I saw, I think, five years ago was a, a computer analysis of given the current conditions of moose mortality, you know, 50 to 70 percent in the calves. And, and for the adult moose, they don't all die of winter tick or, or necessarily brainworm, but also up north because summers have been warmer, the females don't feed. So back when that moose study was done in 85, almost all, all females older than age three produce twin calves every year <laughs> now no twin calves anymore almost no twinning uh, because the the females can't feed when it's above 70 and they don't gain enough weight to successfully produce twin calves anymore so it's a double whammy females are not producing two calves 70 percent of the calves are dying so our, our moose population is in a free fall and based on that estimate and the uh, computer analysis that 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 population model predicted that basically in another decade to 15 years our moose would essentially be gone except for a few hundred stragglers because when you get down to a a few hundred moose it's hard for a tick to find a moose so it'll be it'll be the the diminishing returns that stabilizes the moose population but it'll be a few hundred you know there'll be no moose hunting there'll be you know you there will not be a, a commercial $12 $12 million a year business in New Hampshire, moose viewing yeah, gone. Right. yeah. Uh, So uh, it's, it's, it's invariable that it will not happen at this point because, you know, <laughs> we haven't done what we're supposed to do. Yep. This.
0: <laughs> I will always, yeah, I hear people talk about it all the time. Like what? why, why do we have a season for it now? Cause I don't know what it was this year, 52 or 54 or yeah. something in that, in that ballpark. and, I see the argument, but I also I mean the moose researcher or biologist is making that call for
2: right you know it's uh, so fishing it's, games yeah they, they they still do it they have a you know they, they have a a minimum number of observations of moose when they like two years old closed down the southwestern part of the state for a year or two to see if they would come back so the fact is you know there's still three thousand moose. you can take some uh, you know cars still kill more moose. Of close to 100 as opposed to, what, 38 by 100. So the hunter impact on the moose population is pretty much uh, irrelevant at mm-hmm. this point. So you could stop it. Will the moose come back? It's not going to make one bit of difference. The moose are gone. And whether we hunt them or not, they're gone. It's not going to make any difference. In 10 years, 15 years, we will not see moose. They're you gone. don't
0: think that will eat that? I, I know it because it's climate. So obviously that's too soon for evolution to, to fix itself. But <laughs> yeah. I, I know, <laughs> like, um, people always talk about, or I've heard this, is that in order to have a thriving population that has to be knocked way down, and then it can rebuild itself. But ob- obviously that's not the, the issue that we're having. I
2: think Maine was going to, I don't know if they implemented it or not, they were thinking about significantly removing and reducing the moose population in an area in Maine to see if that that lowered population would then stabilize at a lower rate. So again, you know the moose are so far in few that the ticks aren't as successful getting on them. So there certainly is some level that that will occur. Is it a level that will still have some huntable moose? I don't know that, but I know Maine was contemplating that experiment, and I actually haven't followed it the last year or two, so I don't know. If that has occurred or not, that certainly is not the attitude here in New Hampshire. That we were going to uh, that fit we here I am. Fourteen years since I retired, but I still talk we. Yeah, <laughs> I I must have a fishing game person in my back pocket. or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> it could be a. I think it's a fishing game mouse. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, so we uh, you know I don't think fishing game is uh, is opting to you know intentionally by hunting means reducing the moose numbers to see if if there's some lower number, that would be compatible with the environment. But right. uh, I think Maine was going to attempt that, but uh, not in New Hampshire. Okay. So, there, you know, there will there'll still be some moose. Your grandkids might see some moose, but they're going to put a lot of effort and time into doing that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. We're almost at, uh, what are we at, 45 minutes, 46 minutes, yeah. or something like that. Um <laughs> So uh, where can going, um, so fast for me. yeah I know where can people um, find you on social media?
2: Okay, well I am on Facebook, and uh, since October 10th, uh, as the vice president of the New Hampshire Wilder Federation, and again I've been a member since 1964, uh, and I'm now the vice president. We we uh, decided to work on our social media because you know we can't get to fishing game club meetings and you know the sportsman events where we uh, connect to our to our our fellow club members, we have about 50 fishing game clubs that are still, that make up the New Hampshire Wildlife Federation so we opted to try to do something with our social media and beginning, I think October 10th, I started doing at least weekly or twice weekly videos with uh, Tara uh, Gitau, our uh, executive director and they go up live, so usually Monday, Monday Tuesday or Monday or Tuesday we usually shoot late morning, mid to late morning, a live Facebook post and, you know, it's getting some hundreds and some of them thousands of viewers. And so we try to do at least one or two a week. Plus, uh, we try to put some kind of photo up there almost every day. And uh, <laughs> so uh, if folks uh, want to send us a cool picture of an animal or an outdoor scene, yeah, we could we could use that on our Facebook post or, uh, or send one our way. So, yeah. So mostly this uh, Facebook for the Federation and for my own Facebook post. I do have uh I do have a weekly blog that I actually have been doing since July seventh, two thousand and four. Oh, cool! You know, all those years of working at fishing game, I can't tell you how many hundreds, probably thousands, of people told me, "Well, I was going to do your job," and but I became a plumber.
0: Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at one right now. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, we need plumbers desperately, and there were never ever enough jobs for everybody that wanted to be a wildlife biologist. So I decided I would share mine and. And back then I was doing a monthly uh, public service announcements, a couple of three a month on WOKQ and, and they played every day. And so I just was kind of learning and uh, trying to figure another way that I could share my career, knowing that everybody can't be a wildlife biologist. So I started in July of 04, a weekly or m- more blog, which I still keep. I mean, and there are times if I go away in the winter for a month or so, I don't necessarily keep it up, but, uh, and there are weeks that I skip it, but it, most weeks, I do at least one uh, blog. And basically, it's what is happening in New Hampshire through the eyes of a wildlife biologist now, someone that has five decades, 50 years of experience here in New Hampshire. So, you know, I I pay attention to the rhythm of the wild in New Hampshire, and I talk about that. It's birds, it's salamanders, it's snakes, it's deer, it's bear, it's whatever. Yeah, my, my, kids, just watched, going
0: on. my kids just watched the uh, um the seven sleepers.
2: Ah, they like that yeah. one, yeah. Yep,
0: yep. <laughs> so cool. Yeah, definitely so, uh, so. It's you have your your personal is on Facebook, Eric Orf. Yep. Um your the federation. And then the New Hampshire Wildlife Federation. Is that's the yep.
2: So my my uh, website is uh, where where actually I have my weekly blogs plus there's a link to the 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 uh YouTube channel which I started actually you know, as an old timer, I wanted to try to learn something new. So in May of 2019, I began a weekly YouTube uh, production. And they're rough. I mean, I I, I don't edit much. I, I don't edit any, actually. I tried to edit once and I lost it. So I said, mm, ain't
0: I'm doing not that again. again. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> so, so, so again, I'm looking out my window, I'm taking a walk, a hike, or a hunt. And I talk about what's going on. And and those are all available at, you know, www.nhfishandwildlife.com, nhfishandwildlife.com and spell out and, And so I'll be looking at almost two decades worth of weekly blogs here in another year or two or three. So, uh, and it's really, it really captures the rhythm. I mean, I tell people when the pussy willows come out in the spring, if you look back, you know, if you look ahead the next month, you're going to know, what to see, whether you are working from home and looking out the window or whether you are commuting to a job or whether you're taking a hike. If you look at my, you know, blogs from the last 20 years now, almost, it tells you what is going to happen over the next two or three weeks. Uh, and that's actually what I did uh, when I was doing the uh, the PSAs for WOKQ. You know, I, I, I think, you know, a reporter, what does a reporter report on? They report on what happened yesterday. I reported on what was going right. to happen. What's going to happen? Right. Yeah. It's What's you know June is turtle month. June is fox month. So I always predicted what they were going to see over the next month when I did my PSAs, and I still kind of do that uh, either on my YouTube or on their blog as well. So yeah, I like to tell people this is what's going to be happening. You need to be paying attention.
0: Yeah, I, I I appreciate it, and I it's it's nice seeing you know you don't you don't always. Think about it. It's either hunting season or it's fishing, or it's fishing season or it's ice fishing season. It's it's whatever. But day by day, or yeah, or week by week, kind of walk through. It's uh, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. <laughs> well, none of us are, and yeah.
2: animals always out with us. But you know, I had a slide pro- program I gave for the last two decade or decade of my career called the Golden Years of Wildlife. So I talk about. You know, in 1901, there was one family of beaver left in Pittsburgh on the Canadian border. And now, you know, I call it, you know, these are the best and worst of times. There's a beaver in every ditch, a bear in every bird feeder, a deer in every garden.
0: <laughs> now you got to trap them, yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> so these really are the golden years of wildlife. Yes, you know, our moose numbers are down from 7,500 to 3,000. we still got some. But out at the Isles of Shoals, I helped a little bit Audubon out there because I worked out of the Region 3 office in Durham. We uh, with Audubon went out there and set up some decoys and these loudspeakers, blurring the sound of common terns who hadn't nested there in over 70 years, and brought back common terns. I just learned that this last summer, 3,000 pairs of common terns nested on the wow. Outer Shores, including some rare Arctic and uh, uh, Arctic terns and some other terns that are quite rare. So. Uh, You know, I only had a small part of that, but still, you know, working at fishing game, even though I was the bear biologist and for most of my career the fur bear biologist, so I regulated the hunting and trapping of more than a dozen species there. But you still, you know, got to do other things. uh, And uh, it it gives me great pleasure to think that even though I had a, you know, I just kind of took them out there and helped them get started and took them out a few times and set up the, uh, and take staff out the Isles of Shoals from Audubon, that uh, it has been so successful. Yeah, And, you know, we have 75 pairs of bald eagles now. They were zero when I started. There's, I think, close to 20 pairs of peregrine falcons. They were zero when I started. So, so much, it has been such an awesome time to be a wildlife biologist in New Hampshire. It's unbelievable how so many things have gone right over the last 50 years that I've been involved. I mean, just, these are the best of times. And, yeah, you know, there will be more houses and there will be more people and there will be some habitat that degradation but New Hampshire's still about eighty three or eighty four percent wooded. We got plenty of land yeah, left. Yeah. There's there's room for people and wildlife. And you know, we need to make sure that we we respect that boundary between the two and uh, let's protect more habitat for Absolutely. our wildlife and and uh, make sure when the next pandemic rolls around then people aren't standing shoulder to shoulder to walk on these same trails. We need to <laughs> do a better job there. That's the one thing I think we're falling down on. We need to accelerate the protection of of land in New Hampshire to prepare for the next pandemic. That's, that's my gig for 2021, I can tell you that. Down the drain
1: Yeah, baby, when we're together It's like Vegas times three But in the morning So bad, so bad for me Just like a sip of wine Leaves me to drink You're my gateway drug I'm starting to think It's gonna take much more than Just twelve steps So call Betty Ford Call Dr. Drew Save me a bed Cause in a month or two I wanna quit you girl Just not yet Yeah baby when we're together You're the only drug I need But in the morning So bad, so bad for me Bailing down the road past these city lights You got your hands on the wheel of look in your right I ask myself, is it time to slow down? But the night's still young, we're full of gas Credit cards in my pocket with some living left in We got friends in the next town Yeah, baby, when we're together, it's like Vegas times three, but in the morning I'll know better, cause you're so bad, so bad for me. So bad for me. Oh, cause you're so bad, so bad for me. Cause you're so bad.